0: Very good. It's good to be together tonight. It's good to be uh, sharing God's Word um, here at the 5.30 service. I want to welcome you out to the service as well. Hey, I made the um, mistake recently of going down a rabbit hole of um, obscure and unused folders on my computer. I don't know if you've done this before. And I came across a folder called Resumes. And I could see on that folder that I had created it in 2013. And I thought, oh dear, what was I writing on my resume in 2013? And to give you some context, uh, 10 years ago, just finished school, barely acquired any skills. Um, What could I have written down to attract a potential employer? I've actually um, printed it off. Uh, for you tonight, and I'm not going to read the whole thing lest you be compelled to employ me. Um, but I did just want to give you a few snippets, a few selling points of my resume from 10 years ago, just to um, just to give you a bit of a taste. So it starts off with some stuff I did at school, blah blah blah, my op, whatever, irrelevant. Then it comes to my work experience, and at the top, the thing I've put first to catch my employer's eye is my first job at a fish and chip shop and I've written under the heading Kitchen Hand and I wrote this, have developed various interpersonal skills such as initiating customer service in a positive and professional manner and building co-worker relationships which ultimately benefit the company. I have the ability to use registers, handle money and correctly handle and prepare food. That is a lot said about nothing, right? That is just absolutely nothing. I have just cranked that up to a 1,000. My next heading, my next job, three months at a restaurant, which probably tells you all you need to know. I write this. Extensive skills of customer service and hospitality, including multitasking, waiting on customers in a professional manner, and preparing restaurant-quality drinks and desserts. Bit of conflicting conflicting information there, three months experience, yet extensive skills. You go further and um, it just gets more and more dire. Proficient at Microsoft Word and Excel, as in I can open and close a document. Excellent communication, a team player. I'm really just, just scraping the bottom of the barrel there. You know what all that stuff's called? That's called filler. That's called. um, I ran out of stuff to talk about, and I can't just have my resume take up half a page. So I've got to put a bit more in there. It's funny, hey, going back and looking at these um, early resumes, and, and I can see now all that stuff I was putting on there. Just, it doesn't matter. But it was all I had to show at the time that I could be a good worker. You know, it's all I had to say I can be useful. Please employ me. And um, resumes are a bit funny like that because you have to sell yourself on this piece of paper. Um, Or if you're me, double-sided piece of paper. You have to write something that says, look at me, you know, pick me. Out of all the other applicants, I'm the one that you want. Um, Because we know that the places we're applying to have high expectations and they have limited spots. And as I was thinking about this, as I was reading over Joshua 2, which we are we're in the series of Joshua at the moment, um, it got me thinking we are so we can be so guilty of applying this same thinking to our relationship with God. We are guilty of thinking that God is really only interested in us, really only wants to do something in us, really only wants to be involved. With us when our resume is up to scratch. If we look in the Bible, we look in the Old Testament and, and we see some incredible people. Like, of course, if you you know, if they're in the Bible, they've got to be incredible people. And um, you can start to imagine what would some of these people's resumes look like, you know. Like, you look at a guy like Abraham, what is he putting on his resume? He's gotta be saying something like, you know, able to show complete and utter obedience willing to move anywhere for a job, right? Moses, he's gotta be putting something in there about great at building a team, great at rallying the troops, great at problem solving and conflict resolution, good with details, proficient at scribing and listening um, to to, uh, rules and laws. You look at a guy like David, he's gonna be saying something like, um, I'm precise, I'm good with short range weaponry, I'm loyal, I'm calm, under pressure, I'm assertive, I'm not afraid of conflict, but I also love the arts, I'm a good poet, I'm a good songwriter. We look at these heroes in the Bible and we think, well, no wonder we know who they are, no wonder they are the, the, the lead characters in their stories, no wonder God uses them. They're impressive, they are well prepared, they are strong, they're courageous, they're talented. God has used them because their resume is up to scratch. What about some more recent um, heroes of the faith? What about some more um, up-to-date people in the last 50 to 100 years or whatever? What about someone like, um, you might know the name, Elizabeth Elliot? Incredible, incredible um, faithful missionary who lived with and evangelised to one of the most savage, violent, unreached people groups in Ecuador, and she did that for years. What would her resume look like, you know? Something along the lines of, um, gets along with everybody, not afraid of anything, um, happy to accept no pay and no possessions for work, you know? You look at someone like Billy Graham, one of the most influential Christian leaders of the 20th century, and I had to look this up, but he once preached to 1.1 million people at once. What would his resume look like? Obviously incredible at public speaking, um, strong committed work ethic, clear at communication, all these things. And we might look at these people and go, no wonder we know their names. No wonder God used them. They were ready for the job. Their resumes were up to scratch. They fit the build. They had the gifts and the talents ready to go. If we have that in our minds, if that is our picture of how God functions, that's how God works, we have a serious issue, we have a serious problem in Joshua 2. Because in Joshua 2, all of the action in that scene flows through one character, and that character is Rahab. Rahab, she's a harlot. She's a prostitute. She's also a Canaanite. She's also a liar. She is perhaps the most unlikely of all people in the Old Testament to be included in God's story. And yet she occupies a whole chapter right at the start of the book of Joshua. So let's open, we'll read this section um, in, in a couple of chunks. But let's open, let's see how Rahab is used in this story from Joshua 2. It says this, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they go and they stay, uh, they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. He said, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And so she said to the king, she said, yes, the the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spires on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. So Joshua has sent, um, he's been promised by God that he would be given um, the land of Jericho. He's been promised by God, this is your land, I'm going to give you this. And he takes it upon himself to send out two spies to go and check out Jericho. Now some commentators say he sent them to go have a look at the physical lay of the land, to kind of have a look at what they could do, how they could uh, do some things there. Others say he, went, he sent them to go check out the culture. What was the society like? What were the people like in um, Jericho? And so these two spies, they're sent on this mission undercover. And they cannot be detected because uh, if, if they are detected, they, they will be killed by the, by the government, by the Jericho government. So they sneak in and they go into the city and they find themselves in Rahab's house, which is located in the city walls but it doesn't take long for word to get around it doesn't take long for the Jericho FBI to find out there's two israelite spies here they probably they probably stick out like a sore thumb they probably just didn't look the part and uh the FBI go to Rahab's house and they go to arrest these israelite men presumably to just kill them just take him out rahab does something um deceitful she does something probably that we, would, we might disagree with. She hides the men. She lies to the men. She tricks these, these um, ones who have come to take these men, and she, she sends them away, tricks them so that they're gone um, for good. Rahab is this pivotal character in this story, right? She's this pivotal character, actually, in God's mission of sending these spies, The success of the spies hinges on this moment, hinges on this decision that Rahab makes, and actually hinges on her. And we might wonder, is she up for the job? Are her credentials all there? Does she have what it takes to um, be a pivotal figure in the story of God? Well, firstly, she's a Canaanite. Not a Jew. And this is, this is so important because the Canaanites were described as taking part in worship of demonic idols. They take part in, in disgusting, taboo um, acts. And they even sacrifice their children to the Canaanite gods. They are a corrupt, evil, immoral people. She's one of them. She's a Canaanite. She is, she is born and bred in that system. The second thing about Rahab, she's at a disadvantage already because she's a woman. She's, she's in a, living in a patriarchal society that, that doesn't have any value for, for women. She's voiceless. Get this, an old, um, uh, an old daily Jewish prayer went like, like this. I thank my God that I was not born a woman. That sums up that society, that the way, the value there that was given to her as a person. Thirdly, She's a harlot. She's in a line of work which is uh, immoral, which is damaging. She's on the fringes of society. She's likely entered into that work space because she's poor. She has no other option. She's desolate. This is the only um, way to earn an income. And lastly, not only that, she's dishonest. She actively tricks these men. She lies. To uh, these, these uh, the king's men to save the spies. Now, how is Rahab's resume looking? How's that for a list of skills of things to offer to God to to use? If if our picture of God is like that of an executive boss, and there's a you know he's sitting behind his um, desk, and Rahab's on the other side for a job interview. Is God reaching over the desk, shaking Rahab's hand, saying, you've got the job. You are, I can use you. You're perfect. In our minds, probably not. Rahab's resume sounds completely and utterly dire. We can excuse the Canaanite part and the fact that she's a woman. That's well out of her control. But the fact that, she, you know, She's, she's deceitful and, and she's taking, you know, she's a harlot, all these things. We go, well, like she's choosing to do that. Like what, what on earth is God seeing in her? How, how come she is this pivotal character in this story? We read on um, from verse eight. This is what happens. Before the spies lay down for the night, Rahab goes up to the roof and says to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them. And that you will save us from death. The men assure her our lives for your lives. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house, uh, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, Go to the hills, so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves these three days until they return, and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us, unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied, let it be as you say. So she sends them away and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Essentially, the mission works, the mission is successful. The spies get in and out, they are safe. They report back to Joshua and they say, Get this, everybody in Jericho knows about what the Lord has done. They are quaking in fear. And not only that, not only is this a successful mission for Joshua's spies, for Joshua, but in this process, we see something greater. We see God's heart actually um, illustrated for us. And in the process, we see an incredible, incredible transformation. Rahab, the Canaanite, the lying harlot, confesses her faith in God and is saved. Later in chapter six, Rahab and her family are found by Joshua thanks to the scarlet cord that she hangs in her window and they're spared from the destruction of Jericho. The promise is fulfilled, that comes later. You know, all of Jericho, she describes, all of Jericho has seen how God has parted the Red Sea have seen how God has granted victory to the Israelites. They have, the language is they have melted in fear. They know in some theoretical way that Yahweh God stands above all other gods, that Yahweh stands above their God. But Rahab, she goes a step further. It goes from an understanding to, to she takes it a step further. She doesn't just talk about God, she actually puts her faith in in God. She confesses this. She says, "The Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below." It's a short statement. It's a short confession. Her faith is only is only small. But she has not put her small faith into a small God. She puts her small faith into the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and He pours out an unreasonable amount of mercy upon this woman. With her little bit of faith, she goes. She puts it into action. She she ties the scarlet cord in the window as a physical marker for the spies. If she doesn't do that, they they can't see which window is hers when they come to um, to occupy Jericho um, and destroy it. They can't see which window. Um, Is hers, and so she would have been destroyed. The scarlet cord is literally the only thing that is that is um, is um, ensuring her safety. She puts the cord up as a symbol of faith, and by it she is showing her heart. She shows that she believes that God will stand by His promise, that He will save her, and that He is who He says He is. He is worth. He's he's worthy of it all. He's worthy of all praise and he's worthy of her life. It is so easy when we look at these heroes in the Bible, when we we look at, at people like Abraham, Moses and David, when we look at like Elizabeth Elliot and Billy Graham, it's so easy to have this thought that because they had their resume ready to go because they were, because they had talents and and gifts that God could use them. The truth is God hasn't used them to do his will, to do his mission because their resumes were good. He hasn't used them because they were talented or fit for the job. In fact, it's quite the opposite. God in his grace and in his mercy has actually made them fit for the job. Despite their inabilities, despite their failings, despite their weaknesses, God uses the unlikely to advance his mission. This idea that this, there's an elite that hear from God and do what God wants, it, it's an absolute lie. God uses the unlikely, ordinary person to do his will. I said earlier that um, we hold up people like uh, um, Elizabeth Elliot in, in um, Haragard and we, we, we sort of um, forget that that they had a journey to go through that God actually um, needed to do some transforming work in them Elizabeth Elliot went and lived with these people in um, Ecuador as a missionary but these people actually the year prior had, had um, tragically killed her husband and another group of men that had gone over to, to serve them and so um, she is going back into this environment, um, not, which is just incredibly dangerous. Not only is she going through the grief and the loss of her husband, but she's going back into an environment which she, there's a track record. She knows that these people are dangerous. And in her book, she describes the, the immense fear and anxiety around that. You know, she was worried about what might happen to her. She, she took her baby daughter with her. What might happen to my baby daughter? What might people say about me, she thought as well. They might think I'm an unfit mother. How could I be certain that I'll be safe? How can I be certain that everything will be okay? She had fear. She had extreme fear, extreme anxiety. She also expresses how impatient she was as a person. And she expresses that she struggled to trust in God's timing. Uh, you, you would think that if someone is going to an unreached people group to, to firstly to um, try and understand their language and communicate with them and then secondly to gain their trust to then be able to share the gospel, you would think that the person going over there would need, the abs- would be, need to be the most patient person on the planet. And here Elizabeth Elliot is saying, I'm, I'm impatient, I struggle with patience, I struggle with trusting God's timing. In dealing with the, all of this—the grief, the loss of her husband, the safety aspect, the patience, needing patience—you would, you could say, she's the last person on earth to go into that environment. She's the last person to go and um, and and witness to these people. Yet God uses the unlikely to advance His mission. Billy Graham. Talks about this tremendous anxiety he had when speaking to, to crowds and stage fright that he had at the prospect of um, speaking. And he knew he'd been called to be a preacher. He God had given him that, um, you know, that uh, that dream, that, that vision, but he was just so afraid. He's like, How am I gonna do how, how how can I do this? Like, how can I speak in front of all these people? But he describes this moment in his life where. He um, was attending a meeting, and the, the speaker emphasised the importance of surrendering um, to God's will. And it's in this experience, in this moment of, of prayer and surrender, where Billy Graham felt this profound peace, this profound sense of release from his fear. It's not that God had suddenly, implant, suddenly, you know, implanted in him just this incredible. He's you're now an incredible speaker, and now you can go and do things I've called you. It was instead a release. It was a surrendering to God that enabled God to do his mission through Billy Graham. God uses unlikely people to advance his mission and he transforms them in the process. Coming back to Rahab, Rahab, she goes on to marry, she goes on to settle down and raise a family. But most importantly, she becomes one of the ancestors to Jesus. Through her lineage, through her line, Jesus is born. In Matthew 1, 5 to 6, it emphasises the importance of this, the importance of Rahab's inclusion in this. Rahab had Boaz, Boaz had Obed, Obed had Jesse, Jesse had David, the king. And of course, through David's lineage comes Jesus. Not only this, but in the New Testament, Rahab is, is called an example of living faith. She is called righteous by her actions. This is not because her resume was impressive. This is not because she was this incredible person who who had all these skills and could be used. It was because she had a pinprick of faith and God poured out His mercy upon her. God took someone who was an outsider to their society and He grafted them into His story. He had a plan for Rahab all along and he has a plan for each and every one of us here tonight. You know what I think is probably the craziest thing about this story as well is is we see God's radical, radical love his radical grace in this story because it was actually probably the fact that Rahab was a harlot, which meant that the spies found refuge at her place. You, know, you think about this, this, this place, this would have been somewhere where people were coming in and out discreetly laying low and it would have been the perfect place for the spies, um, the perfect location for the spies to slip in and, and not um, be detected by anyone. What does this tell us? It tells us that God uses broken circumstances, uses past broken circumstances to bring good. Nothing is off limits to God's goodness. He takes things that are broken. He takes things that we go, God, you could never, you would, you don't, you know, you are repulsed by that. You don't want to use that. He takes those things and he brings them, he makes them beautiful. I'm not saying he condones Rahab's line of work. He doesn't say, keep going. He actually makes a new creation out of Rahab, he transforms her. And in transforming her, he now transforms her past. It's no longer Rahab the, the harlot. It is, it is in fact Rahab who has been used by God and transformed through his grace. It's no coincidence as well that the, that the, the rope, the cord that she hangs in her window is scarlet. The, the, the text wouldn't include that if that wasn't important. The the scarlet cord, um, it stands as the symbol, it stands as a foreshadowing of the blood of Christ, which is to come, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate assurance of his saving power. You know, the scarlet rope redeemed Rahab in that day in Joshua, but it it points forward to the new um, era, the new life under the covenant of Jesus. We are not redeemed by hanging a rope in our windows. We don't go and do that to show our faith, but we are redeemed by the blood of Christ. 2 Corinthians says this, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. It is a reality, it is here. Jesus came, died, rose again to bring about this new creation and he is committed to our transformation. He is committed to transforming us, whether we see it, whether we feel it, whether we know it. He is at work. I want to finish tonight just with this, this last story. Um, in, the, uh, in the early 90s, this guy, John Baker, was a long-standing and struggling alcoholic who realized that his addictions were causing significant damage to his life, to his relationships and his faith. And whilst he found AA meetings to be helpful, it was ultimately his faith in God which saw him overcome his addictions. And a few years later, this idea began to take root in his mind, in his heart, for a Christ-centred recovery program that could help others who were struggling with addiction. So what he did was he wrote a 13-page double-sided letter to his pastor, and um, said uh, he shared the principles of recovery, how God had provided healing in his life, and how he wanted to share that with others. And God took this this man and his broken past and his all that all that stuff. Um, God took that took that idea, and um, the man, through God's help, started this ministry called Celebrate Recovery. And it grew so rapidly. Today, there's 37,000 churches worldwide have gone through this program and 42 state prison systems have integrated the program worldwide. God takes our past, our broken history and he transforms it and uses it for his good. And though you may feel in this moment, that's a good theory that, that would be nice. You may even feel like a bit of a Rahab at the moment, unusable, unlovable, or you know, not enough, not yet. You might feel like that. I'm telling you, Christ offers you a new life. Christ reaches out and says, let me make you a new creation. Let me transform you. And just like Rahab, you may have um, heard of stories of God. You may uh, have heard about Jesus. You may think, that sounds great. You may have heard what He does in the lives of others and you may go, that would be great. And so I actually want to give you an opportunity tonight as the, as the band come up, as we prepare our hearts to worship, I want to give you an opportunity tonight. If you, are, if you just have but a, a, a snippet of faith, just a, you know, a tiny bit of faith, there is any faith in you, I wanna give you this opportunity to confess it and see what God will do. See how God transforms your life. See how He transforms your heart. Why don't we bow our heads and pray? And if that's you, just pray this with me. You can even just whisper it to yourself as we pray. Pray this with me. Lord, I believe you are God in heaven above and over all the earth. I believe in the saving power of Christ and I believe that your blood has covered my sin and that by your blood, I am loved, saved, redeemed and transformed. And Lord God, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. Just in this posture of prayer, there are some here too that, 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 are, that feel like God can't actually do something in their lives that maybe their resumes is enough to scratch, that God can't use them. And so if that's you, let's pray this one together. Let's pray against that. Let's pray, Lord, even though I feel like I can't be used by you, I am trusting that you can and you will. I know that in my weakness, you are strong, that your power is made perfect in my brokenness and that you are already doing things that I can't see right now. And so Lord, help me to ignore the labels I've put on myself or that others have put on me. And instead, let me think of myself as a child of the living God. Jesus, I believe you are transforming me and I hand myself over to be used by you. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. We worship a God who makes a way. He's the light in the darkness. Let's not live in the, in the, in the falseness that God uh, only uses the elite. Let's live in the truth that if we are in Christ, we are a new creation. He's doing a work. Let's sing, let's worship Him in that space.